0: Hello, my name is Joe, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode we speak with inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. My co-host, Ran Bowen and I would like to honour the elders of the wisdom traditions of yoga that originate in India. We also wish to honour the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. In this episode we speak with Amy Weintraub. Amy is the author of Temple Dancer, which is a fascinating book. You may also know Amy's other books, which include Yoga for Depression and Yoga Skills for Therapists, and her work with the Life Force Yoga Healing Institute, which focuses on yogic practices for anxiety and depression. In this episode, we speak to Amy about her earlier life as an award-winning but depressed television producer, and how she discovered yoga and the inspiration and research that went into creating Temple Dancer. So, Amy Weintraub, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'd like just to start by getting a brief little overview about your
1: background and where you grew up. Okay, Joe. Well, as I was growing up, I considered myself growing up in the boring suburbs of the Midwest, mid-Atlantic Pittsburgh, which was a steel town at the time. And I I grew up in what seemed to be a normal, privileged, white, middle class to to maybe a little bit upper middle class family that seemed quite normal. But underneath the surface, there were there was a lot of dysfunction and no family is ever completely normal. But I did grow up. I had childhood reasons for my own depression and I I didn't realize i was depressed i was high functioning depression but but there were times when i felt lost and thank goodness i had what i think every child needs who may not have the best parenting best skilled parents in the world i had a next door neighbor who adored me she had no children of her own and I felt loved. I felt she, I, I like to say she was my first guru. She taught me what unconditional love meant. And many children have that, that wonderful gift in their lives of having a grandparent or an aunt or someone who sees them the way they need to be seen in the world as beloved, precious beings even when their parents may not be able to see them that way. So I had that gift. And I think that gift of having that beloved neighbor was, I think, what inspired my trust in love, my trust in the love in the world, and inspires my yoga teaching, my yoga life. Because for me, It's first and foremost about making sure that there's enough love in the room, that people feel welcome in all of their feelings, that all feelings are welcome, that all parts of themselves are welcome. And so I credit Louise, my next-door neighbor, my first guru of love, as my first primary teacher. Oh, so beautiful. How
0: beautiful that you had that modeled to you, like in your tender growing up years. And I'm wondering, obviously, Louise was just someone who lived her life in a yogic way and was very compassionate and very open Was she also the person who introduced you to the practices of yoga or did you discover that somewhere else?
1: Oh, no. She was Marlboro cigarette smoking. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about her drinking habits because I was a little kid. I was three when I met her. But she was definite. She had a yogi heart, most definitely, but she did not lead a, a yoga lifestyle. No, I was in college and drifting and unhappy, and I began, I actually, my father, brother, and I all took a transcendental meditation course. At that time, it was $35 to to get our mantra, and I started meditating. And I went and I met when I was in college. I went to meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I spent a month doing the uh, a course with him, and that. And I was also doing physical postures from a book, so there were no yoga classes. We went on rounding retreats and rounding weekends, in which we would meditate as a group. And then we would all trot off to our hotel rooms with sheets of postures and instructions. So that was my first in-college exposure to yoga, and that was many years ago. And then I became a householder, depressed. I fell off the wagon of meditation and had a child and a difficult marriage and a divorce and Boy, did depression loom. It showed itself in physical ways. I had eczema over half my body. It showed itself in mental ways. I couldn't put two shoes in a shoebox. It showed itself in all the koshas, in every mental, physical, emotional, my breath body. My food pot, everything. So, and I rediscovered yoga at a certain point. And that's when I discovered yoga that included pranayama, asana, meditation, chanting. And when I began a regular yoga practice, and at the, in that time, there were no yoga teachers where I lived at that time in Newport, Rhode Island. That's when I began a yoga practice daily, and I took home, at that time, video cassettes and audio cassettes, so that tells you how long ago it was, of teachers at Kripalu Center, where I first started practicing a regular asana practice on fluffy pink blankets there were no Uh, yoga mats and 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 that's how I began I began at home doing my practice to tapes and began to feel better and I could go on and on but maybe you have a question I can tell you a little bit about how it changed my life but
0: Oh, it's, no, I'd love to hear. It's, I feel like this is the heart of everything else that you share. So feel free yeah. to kind of go a little deeper into it.
1: Well, what happened was, I, at that time, I was on antidepressants. I was seeing a psychiatrist weekly, and I started feeling better and better. And as I say in really the first chapter of Yoga for Depression, that I was driving across the Newport Bridge, which is a long expanse, listening to an audio tape in my van that said, name yourself. And what bubbled up was the name abundance. And I had been practicing yoga for maybe nine months daily. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, my psychiatrist says I'm one of those people who will always have empty pockets, who will always need medication. So how am I abundant in this way? And I thought the only thing that's changed is that I have a yoga practice. And so I went to her and you know, when you have a therapist, there's something called transference and you care about her and you've had, I've spent, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years working with her on a weekly basis. And I trusted her. And I said, you know, I don't think I need this medication anymore. And she saw me as one of those people she had finally stabilized on medication. So she was reluctant to take me off the medication. So I reluctantly went to a friend's psychiatrist who saw me for a couple of months. And he said, I don't see you as a candidate for this medication. And slowly, and I think this is key for anyone who's listening who may be on medication, extremely slowly, we slowly titrated me off the medication at the same time that I was doing yoga. And that was in 1989, and I haven't been on medication since. I Yoga has been my... Uh, I mean, Transform my life as it has. I'm sure for many of your listeners, um, that's why we're so passionate about it. And I then I be I did a teacher training. My first one was at Kripalu Center. It was the standard 200 hour yoga practice, and I did it not so much to teach, but to deepen my own practice. It was a month long immersion. I came out of there hot to teach, Joe. I could not keep it inside me. I was passionate to share what had saved my life with others. And then I began researching, working with researchers, and pretty soon teaching the kinds of yoga practices that for me and my students had made such a difference in our moods. And eventually it became the training that is life force yoga. And which actually I taught in Australia with Lee Blaschke and Janet, Janet Lowndes assisting and present back. And I think around two, 2010, it was in Melbourne. So it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey. It never stops. I practice every day. It's my medicine.
0: Oh, my goodness. And there's never been a time where these practices would be more vital for people. And this is a side question, sorry, that I haven't prepared you for, but it is something that just came to my own mind. Is there anything that you've changed with your practice as we've been living through this pandemic? Or do you feel like you've kind of laid the groundwork that you can just continue with these practices that sustain you? Or have you found that you have to dig a little deeper into that emotional toolbox of
1: strategies for well-being? Well, that's a good question, Joe. I actually, I have this toolbox of strategies for well-being, as you called it, that I go to every day. And it's some, it looks different every day. I mean, although there are some things I do every day, there are certain prayers and chants, meditation, but my practice, because I live usually in different climates, because I usually travel a lot, which I'm not doing, shifts with the climate and the time of the year and all those sorts of things. And I really haven't seen a big difference in my own practice. I just need to get to the mat to get. I do a lot of my standing practice outside in nature, and that's so healing, especially during a pandemic, to be able to be in nature. And I don't know where you are, what the lockdown situation is for you right now even though our cases currently are on the rise, we're not locked down. So that means I can be out in nature and practice and chant and do my standing practice. My, my meditation and my belly down poses and the rest of my practice is done indoors on a yoga mat. But there are certain practices that I love to do outside. And I, that hasn't changed because I'm still able to get out in nature. I'm not sure how it would be if I were in a total lockdown and couldn't get out of my house or apartment. What is the situation there where you are, Joe? Are you able to get out? We have an allocated
0: hour a day that we can go outside to exercise within a five kilometre radius of our home and we're allowed to go with one other person. So it's been a really helpful thing for me, actually. I, I'm lucky that I've got a lot of friends who live nearby. So at least once a week, I go for an exercise walk with a friend for the whole hour. And it's like it ticks these three mental health boxes, I'm exercising, I'm in nature, and I'm having this heartfelt conversation with a friend because for that hour, there's no screens or anything else. We're just really, I've had some great conversations over this time because everyone's, you know, it's such a, I don't know, pressure cooker is not the right word, but it seems like there's a lot of time where people are really looking at some aspects of their lives. There's a lot of time for contemplation, a lot of looking at the world that we're living in and wondering how we can make it better. So, yeah, I've been really enjoying my outdoor walks and I go on my own as well. I do try and take that hour every yeah. day.
1: Oh, that's so important and I'm glad you have that. I wish you had more and maybe as time goes on that time will exp- they'll expand the time of your Actually Actually, it, it might have gone to two hours.
0: I think it's just been an hour in my mind for so long. That's just, that's my personal walk time frame. But um, what I'm really looking forward to is hopefully this afternoon, there's going to be another announcement of as to whether our restrictions will change. And the 5k limit might go to 25 kilometers. And that would be really great because I've (laughs) explored every park in my five kilometers. So it'd be really nice to like get a little bit further afield. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I hope that that's the case for you. We have started something, my a partner and I called the Trashy Divas. And Oh, I like the sound of this. Yeah. So we are sponsored by the city of Tucson, Tucson Clean and Beautiful, and we have t-shirts and we have claws, those that help you. Oh, Reachers. the rubbish grab claws? Yeah, exactly. And we have gloves and we have garbage bags, and we're out on our favorite mountain that we like to ride our bikes on with a group of women from all over Tucson who are trashy divas. And one, so good. once a month we gather at 8 a.m. and uh, collect garbage. So,
0: <laughs> And that would also have that other layer of actually not just being in
1: nature but doing something positive for the environment at the same it's time. So it's a way of giving back to Mother Nature. It's a way of honoring Gaia. It's a way of honoring the goddess by just being, by giving back, by cleaning her, our precious earth that is under assault in so many ways. So what, doing what we can do can also lift our spirits by giving back in such ways.
0: And probably a nice chance for members of the community that otherwise might not have connected to each other to have this shared positive activity.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there, each time we do it, there's we grow in numbers. The last time (laughs) 14 and the next time we do it once a month and we do pop-up cleans in our neighborhoods, but we do the, the, something called Sentinel Peak, which is our A mountain in Tucson. And we gather there once a month. And um, so yeah, it's it's really lifts our spirits and we expect more women each each time we do a trashy diva event. Oh, beautiful. Well I guess we should slightly
0: segue the conversation, still on the power and beauty of women. But I'd love to hear about your latest book, which is Temple Dancer.
1: Would you like to lead in by briefly describing the story to us? Well, Wendy, who's an American artist turned clinical social worker, meets in on a pilgrimage to India in 1997 a Devadasi, an elderly woman on the train, very mysterious. And she begins to tell a little bit of her story, the Devadasi Sadaswati, And she tells the story that's very intriguing to Wendy, and then she disappears, and in her stead is a little red book that's dusty and old, and it's in the Karnatakan language. So Wendy goes home and ha- takes it to Wesleyan University, which in the US has the largest world music library, to ask to have it translated. And the professor emeritus, who was uh, Karnataka and in a long lineage of tabla players, dies before he finishes it. And it so it's lost for 20 years. And it finally shows up in her inbox in 2016. And so Wendy goes on a spiritual pilgrimage to an ashram in the States, Yogaville, which is a real place. And she reads it there and reads the story of this young temple dancer at the sort of mid-century, mid-20th century, during the Raj and just after. And it's a story that moves her deeply and ha- puts her into a contemplation of her own life and her own mistakes. Both women are mm, shamed for their beliefs, their sacred sexuality, their creativity. Both women make mistakes in the name of love, and both women find their way towards redemption. And it looks culturally at what was happening in, so it's kind of, it's part of historical novel. And the interesting thing, Joe, is people sometimes ask me, oh, you must have done a lot of research. And I did. But the research came after the voice came to me. So can I tell you about how that Voice landed. Oh, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Okay. So, um, this was after my second longish couple months' sojourn in India when I'd had some amazing experiences that I didn't understand. And one was meeting, or not really meeting, but seeing in a sacred site in a village called Kayavarohan that used to be a, a really sacred site. A woman dressed in saffron, so likely it was strange because she she looked like she would be a monk or a, a nun or a brahmachari or not a brahmachari, but a, a sannyasin. And yet her hair was loose and there were bandages on her wrists. There was something strange. And she was probably in her 50s, and I was much younger. I. <laughs> this actually happened. So it's, I give it to Wendy. I give Wendy the story. No, it happened to me. So that's why I wrote it. Okay. So she was doing mudras and I started following her through mudras. And it was just this moment of connection. And we bowed to one another. I didn't speak Gujarati. She didn't speak English. And that was it and then later on that same trip i was in the office of an indian feminist um, who had written a novel or actually a collection of short stories that i really admired and she and i were talking and she showed me a calendar in fact gave it to me um, of that that had been taken of women beady rollers in karnataka and children beady rollers. And they had been get dedicated to the goddess Yalama. Some of them were about to be or were dedicated. And these were young girls. And after the ban on temple dancing in 1947, thousands of years of sacred temple dance was eliminated. And the women who were trained to be devadasis were thrown out of the temple grounds they did the they tied the tali around the bride's neck they were really auspicious women they were thrown out and many of them became prostitutes and there were still because they were auspicious but unchaste and so this fascinated me that these this i this culture this devadasi culture temple dancers were once the pride of India and, and of temples and re- they led religious festivals and life cycle events. And and suddenly they were ostracized and thrown out and it just brought so low. And I wanted to, I well, at that time I came home and I was just really moved by a particular picture that just haunted me and i was i had been a fiction writer i'd studied fiction and none of my novels were published short stories had won awards but my novels hadn't been published and when i came home the voice about a month later this voice of a little girl started flowing through me and i just took dictation it was like it was received and wendy's story was written Saraswati's story felt felt. I can't say literally, but it felt received, and I just wrote the story. And then, then it was like, oh, I've got to do research to corroborate what this story. And I, I did. I Wesleyan, which is the largest library, as I've said, of world music, had collections of master's thesis and PhD dissertations, studying the Devadasis. There were also a couple of academic books that I used, and I interviewed a couple of people who were temple dancers who had studied with Balasar, Swati, and some of the most famous now no longer alive temple dancers, some of whom taught internationally. Those who had a An international reputation continued to do so but they were, it became more of a secular dance than a devotional dance and it was also very much cleaned up sanitized, it was not as sexualized as it had been or seductive I should say, there were seductive aspects to it when the Devadasis performed because they were like geishas, they were holy women who were married to God, and they also saw God in the eyes of their patrons. And the patrons might be a, the pre- temple priest, or the Maharaja, or some other wealthy people. And so the Devadasis were banned partly because they were, became powerful. They were given land by their patrons or cows or gold, and they became powerful. And they were, that was part of the reason it seems that they were banned. There were other reasons as well. So I, I, w- I was just really passionate about understanding the, the depths of this culture that had so provided the beauty of what we now know as Bharatanatyam, or classical Indian dance. That's where it comes from, uh, Devadasi tradition
0: hello ron here just popping in to talk about our patreon page patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as one dollar us a month Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast if you'd like to help us with a small monthly donation just go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast and join the fun If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Amy. I'm so glad to hear that you actually got to speak to a couple of the Devadasi themselves, because I was wondering about that in your research, because I can't imagine that at the time when it was practiced, like before it was banned, I just always imagined it would be very much an oral transition and like in the way of yoga and experiential learning, like I didn't think there'd be any textbooks. And then The women, since they lost their homes and lost a lot of their power within society, I imagine with that they would lose their voice as well and they would not be very well represented in any of the written sources at the time and maybe would not have, well, they would have probably been able to write in their own language, but that sounds like that would have been a challenge to translate. So I'm so happy to hear that you're actually able to
1: have that experience of directly connecting to some of the women who lived this life. It was, yes, it, but it was an indirect connection because most of them were no longer alive at that time. I think there were a few in India, but I spoke with the students Oh, so you're learning from
0: their students.
1: Their senior students, yeah their senior students, because the ones who were quite famous were teachers, international teachers, and people like Jalaya Bonheim and others who taught. There was a woman, oh, K. Por, Porcine, taught at Wesleyan University, and she performed uh, Bharatanatyam. She had studied with Balasaswati and was her one of her pr- principal students bala Saraswati was famous before the ban because of her international reputation of a as a, both a, a teacher and a performer i mean we have to thank the schools for in what was madras for preserving the temple dance however when the Devadasi petitioned to teach in those programs, their petitions were denied and the male dance masters were hired. So they the Devadasis, the temple dancers, suffered greatly. And so there just it just feels to me, I felt I, I had this this story that was given to me, this gift of a voice, Saraswati's voice. And I felt like I needed to share it with the world. And I needed a vehicle for it. And so Wendy became my vehicle. I'm not a clinical social worker. I'm not a painter, artist. My daughter is not a founder of a dance company in New York. The thing about fiction, though, Joe, is that you can create whole different biographies, whole different characters, and then you can mine deeply the emotional truths that, or the questions that are arising in your own heart, sometimes more than you can in nonfiction. Because in nonfiction, you're being careful, you're protecting yourself, perhaps, and others uh, who are alive or honoring the memories of people that you know, you know or have <laughs> known, whereas in fiction, you're creating characters, and you can give those characters the emotional reality that you want to explore in a deeper way. So Wendy has aspects of who, my own journey, but they're different. Wendy makes mistakes, but I didn't make the same mistakes. I made <laughs> my own different mistakes. So it's a it's a book that I am very excited about because I feel that finally I'm fulfilling a a dharma, a part of my dharma, which was to bring Saraswati's voice into the world.
0: Wow! So hearing you explain it like this, it sounds like Saraswati wrote herself, like that just came through you. And through Wendy, you could draw on a lot of the questions that you maybe had experienced in your own life or just were questions of humanity. Was it an easy book to write? Or even though there was a lot of aspects that flowed, was there also a lot of deep emotional digging, which is not easy?
1: Yeah. Well, the Saraswati portions just flowed. There was I mean I cried at certain times when I when it was revealed to me some of the the challenges and difficulties Saraswati goes through it made me cry <laughs> but I, and it made me joyous at other times because it felt received. Whereas with Wendy I did have to mine and there were there were difficult portions to write and that give me if you're going to be honest emotionally, you can't pull punches, you can't hold back and that can be painful as well. And in fact, Ring Lardner, who is a famous baseball story writer in the US in I guess like that I the 60s maybe he said and this was before of course computers he said writing fiction is like taking a blade over uh, against your wrist and letting it drip on the typewriter sorry to be such a (laughs) graphic image but it's you're mining deep emotional pain and and which is one reason I, you know, as a fiction writer, I was, I had suffered from depression for many years and I no longer suffer from depression. And I thought as many artists often think that you have to be really suffering and you have to have that angst of depression and Darkness to be a fine painter. I mean, we read about Jackson Pollock's life, and you know, uh, read about Hemingway's life, and they've all had this so much depression and drug and alcohol abuse and that kind of thing, and and so we think you, some of us have this, I think, erroneous belief that we have to be deeply, deeply troubled. To be an artist, and what I've discovered is that the trouble is that has been there. But if you have, as well, okay, for, I can only speak for myself. Someone who's studied and practiced yoga for more than thirty years, I I see that dark darkness as part of humanity, part of my own life, part of all our lives. And we would not be able to see the light if we didn't have the darkness, and finding that 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 wholeness that yoga brings us to that uh, that t- true nature of self with a capital s we can we can embrace those darker moments in our lives with not without being overwhelmed by them without being flooded. And we can receive the joys from a place of, of that embraces all of it, and that—that's whether we call it the witness or the seer, or being in that spacious awareness that yoga facilitates. We can mine and explore those darker places in fiction and in art, and also not be overwhelmed by it, not be swept away by it. So I wrote, you know, uh, the poet Wordsworth talked about emotion remembered in tranquility. And so I think Wendy's character developed from a place of tr- where I now am in more tranquility, but remembering those turbulent times in my own life and then masking them (laughs) somewhat in fiction. And
0: navigating the darkness and like a lot of trauma within the story as well. It's the journey of each of the characters that they do all take in different ways. And something that really struck me that you didn't shy away from in the telling of this story is the nuance within the life of the devadasi because in one hand they are powerful figures they express sacred sexuality in their dance it seemed like a lot of them lived quite luxurious lifestyles in the temple grounds but at the same time it didn't seem like they had a lot of agency to say no to some of the aspects of their work like especially when there were priests or there were rich patrons like it seemed like it was just an expectation that there would be certain people they would have to have sex with whether they wanted to or not and navigating that through Sparti's eyes as a really young vulnerable character and her stepping into her power was one aspect of the story and then There are other characters as well that have kind of dealt with sexual trauma and taken this journey towards resilience and towards creative expression as a path to healing without glossing over that. And so I found that a really powerful aspect of the book and a confronting aspect of it at some times as well. Like this is not just a pretty story. Would you like to explore that side
1: of the story now? Sure. Without going into too many details about that, but yes, there was an expectation that, and, a, and a, one of the blessings when a girl came of age that the Devadasis gave her was, may you have as many husbands as there are sand, kernels or sands in, in the sea or something like that. And of course, Saraswati is very resistant to that concept and just does not see it that way and some of the fortunate devadasis had just one patron you know like a like a geisha had could have many or could have one now put that in the con so that 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 aspect of it is quite troubling for us for all of us but In the context of what was going on for women in India, and still goes on, there were, when a woman marries a man, uh, traditionally, especially in the villages even today, she goes to live in her mother-in-law's house. And she's literally a servant, expected to bear a boy child. Lots of abortions happen when there are girl, too many girl childs and sometimes there are continue to be bride burnings. And I mean, there was uh, I don't know some statistic I saw recently that like there were eight thousand bride burnings sati, you know, well not even sati sati is with the husband who dies, but actual bride burnings because the 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 family wanted a new wife for their son. So it's the ways in which, not that it isn't changing, not that it, the only way out, even when I was in India in the early 90s, for someone who was not wealthy, and so therefore not able to get an education, the only way out of marriage was either to f- figure out a way to get an education. And usually be single, or and so you're bucking the family's desire to arrange a marriage for you, or be the sort of a disciple in an ashram and serve the guru. So I met many women, young, beautiful women who were serving the guru. As a way that kept them from having to go into an arranged marriage where their husbands made all the decisions and some and and risk in some circumstances risk their lives by marrying, so it's in that context that these women, although so they're they're in some ways they had more freedom, they were educated and there were aspects of their lives that were less than freeing because they were at times, I think at a certain point, a Devadasi got to say no and choose, but initially those choices were made for her. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, and it's, it's really hard. I think it speaks to Women's sacred sexuality has been manipulated and used, and it's really part of the patriarchy in all our cultures. But in particular, we see it, I could see it in India. And thank God it's changing. I have Indian friends. I have a dear, dear friend who just got married at a late age she became an academic and a researcher and you know, that was her path and finally she married a fellow researcher a love marriage not an arranged marriage but it's it's it really speaks to the ah, the the ways in which women are viewed and the devadasi was were just part of a bigger picture of patriarchal repression of women and their sexuality and their creativity and their power. Which unfortunately really goes across
0: so many cultures and so many time periods and is still very visible in our world today. It leads me to another question because... It's so important to share these stories and to learn about these people's lives and to hear their stories. And I know this is a question that has occurred to you because two characters in your book had a conversation about it. Were there any moments where the thought of cultural appropriation came up and where well,
1: mm-hmm. go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we know. Well, When back, okay, Sataswati's voice came through me. That's how I see it. I mean, someone else may have a different take on it. But in 1994, after my second long visit to India and studying Advaita Vedanta philosophy, which weaves through the book, by the way, but there was no question about cultural appropriation at that point it just was a flow it was a download i was just like i felt like i was giving voice to Saraswati and i was like commissioned by her to tell her story for some unknown reason i just felt like i it was a gift and i needed to share it then Years later, as I developed the Wendy character, then the questions of like, well, is it my story to tell? And it's not really my story. I'm just sort of, it's Saraswati's story. But what what gives me the right to publish this book? Well, that's when I, uh, you know, I had, at the time that her voice came through, I met with Kay Porcine and talked to other Indian Dancers um, it, from India who were classical. When I say they, they're not temple dancers. They they are teachers of Bharatanatyam, Bharatanatyam, the classical Indian dance, and they, you know, they're part of a lineage. But they were younger Indian women, and they read Savaswati's voice, and they said, "Oh, this." They sort of welcomed this. I mean, they loved it, and and so okay, all right, and then. Later, I mean, even just as much as like in the last year or two, I've had other Indian readers who were uh, acknowledged in the book and both who are, one of them is, runs a school. And she, she she's an Indian woman who runs a school for classical Indian dance and was trained through the lineage of classical dance that comes from the Devadasi tradition. And she loved it. I mean, she said this is an important story to be told, essentially. And so, yeah, there are there are always, especially in this day and age, those kinds of questions. And my intention, and I think there's been some a number of essays on this and on this subject, and I've even written an essay on this subject. But (laughs) I think the intent, if the intention is pure to, to honor the culture, to honor the traditions of that culture, to understand it, and then to get feedback from members of that culture. Those are the two criteria, the intention, pure, to honor, to respect, and then to get feedback from members of that culture. If you have those two things, I believe, as does a number of the Indian folks, including Shirley Tallis and Subha Prabhar, and I'm thinking of some of the other Indian people who've read it, that's how they see it. And so that, for me, is how I'm offering it. It's an offering.
0: I think as well the way that you chose to tell this story where there was a character somewhat from your world and her daughter and through her you could explore some of these questions that might come up and the different cultural context and the different time as opposed to writing, say, I don't think you would ever do this, but in the style of a romance novel, just through the temple dancers' eyes and their journey and without seeking actual first-hand research from people who are from that culture and lived that life, I think that would be a very different conversation. I felt like you were very upfront that you were a visitor to this culture, but deeply honour and respect and love And learn from it and so having another white lady character who which is me kind of go on this journey at the same time I think it was a really I guess like a very honest way to look at it to be like this is my look into another world another time another woman's life who is very different from my own it's like you yeah, I just thought it was a really good way to tell that story. And I really appreciated a couple of other perspectives in there in this mix, because as we've spoken about today, it's a, a beautiful tradition in a lot of ways, but also there's a lot of challenging aspects to
1: it. Yeah. And we don't, I mean, in the book, we don't back away from those other challenging aspects and that are quite painful to the characters. And and painful to readers at a certain point, I've had people say, no, you know, that can't happen. They're like, oh, please, Amy, I'm halfway through. You know, what's going to happen? And then they go back and they say, okay, oh, thank God, at least that didn't happen. You know? <laughs> um, and I, as a, re- having read the book, Joe, you probably know what I mean. You know, oh, God, at least that didn't happen. But yeah, other yeah. <laughs> but other things do happen and that are, are deeply troubling and some of them are kind of it's a mystery. There's there are unresolved there's an unresolved mystery at the core of the novel that the reader can sort of involve herself or himself or their self in the reader can involve themselves in in contemplating it sort of pulls you in just for example joe you have been struggling with some of these issues as a reader and that's good that's good it's like yeah we need to really think deeply about these issues of cultural appro- appropriation of sacred sexuality of sex trafficking you know was this sex trafficking and that's what one of the que- the characters asks is was this sex trafficking well those are questions that i think the reader needs to can explore and then there is a sense of completion if not full solving of the mystery <laughs> you know there's a sense of completion i i feel i felt complete as the writer as I came to the end of the story. Both Wendy's story, it's not resolved. She doesn't go off with a man somewhere and maybe live happily ever after, and nor does Sadaswati go off and live happily ever after. You don't really know what's going to happen, but there is some sort of emotional completion, I think. Yeah, I think
0: um, life doesn't necessarily tie everything up in a neat little bow. And who's like your story is finished when you die. So that's the completion. I think you struck a really good balance of resolving certain aspects and everyone got to a different place in their lives and a different understanding of who they were. And I like to think of them going out into the world and living happily ever after on their own time (laughs) after the book had finished. (laughs)
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that, that I took from my own life was the exploration of the guru question. So I took it from my own life. It's different in the novel, but sometimes we as Westerners are going to a culture like India, where the guru's job really is to break through the ego and to just crack you wide open and that sometimes means using a very big stick and for those of us i can't speak for australians i think you may be a little more resilient but in the us we were at we grew up with families not in one place not sort of all like the village raises the child we, our families were scattered, there was divorce, there was dysfunction, there was all of those things. And there was no caste system, but of course there was an unwritten sort of caste system in terms of people of color and Native Americans and, you know, that, that, that has existed in the U.S. But we were... In a place of not really knowing who we were, and when you look at an Indian child at least before sort of the globalization of the world, that Indian child grows up with aunties and uncles and so many people in their world who who are raising them, and they may have grown up knowing that they're Great, 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 great grandfather was a scholar, and they would be a scholar. Or the great, 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 great grandfather, and we're talking men now, was a shoemaker, and they carry on the tradition of the shoemaker. So there was a sense of I know who I am. So when so the job of the guru was to break through that, knowing who you are, to get into the place of really knowing. The, your true nature, who you are beneath the labels, beneath the legacy of what your ancestors have done. And Americans didn't, US citizens didn't have that. So I, as a, my first time in India, I think in my 30s, I didn't have a sense of knowing who I was. I was exploring. I was, I was deep into yoga, and I still didn't know who I was. I was still on a journey. And to be confronted, first drawn in by this teacher who adore, seemed to adore me, and letters back and forth and telepathic sort of things happening when I was back in the U.S., and then going a second time and being iced out, literally. I came back from my studies with that particular guru with fibromyalgia and like sick, and I stopped teaching yoga. So I put a little bit of that struggle of that Uh, uh, Wendy has just in the beginning of the novel. She's back in India after uh, a heartbreak in her dealings with a guru when she was much younger. And he's on his deathbed, and she's hoping for some kind of, of completion in their relationship, which she doesn't get. And that's when she meets this woman, this mysterious woman on a train, who in a moment, through her eyes, gives her what she's been longing for that she didn't receive from her visit to her dying guru. So it's a way of exploring that whole guru question. I have thoughts about that. That's a you know, sort of outside the novel. And but I, I really feel that we honor the traditions of India. Mother India has taught us so much. And if we have any kind of psychological vulnerability, we have to be careful who we choose as teachers.
0: I think that. That is definitely a powerful truth and one that is really, really important to share, especially as we learn about unfortunate legacies of abuse in so many lineages. And yeah, it's definitely a really, I felt that pain when I was reading about the character as well. And what struck me at the time too is how few people you could go to who would understand that feeling because it seemed like the people who were very much within the family, the Ashram family, would take the point of view that this is the guru teaching you a lesson and you need to just go and sit and learn that lesson and people who don't have any experience of that culture or that world would probably just say, well, forget about them. Like they're not helping you anymore, just go live your life. So you'd be
1: in this really lonely place. Absolutely. You know, in my own case, I came back from India not only in physical pain, psychic pain, but also deciding I can't teach yoga anymore. And I was called by a dear friend and one of my teachers not my master spiritual teacher, but a dear friend and teacher and co- who's become a colleague, Suda Carolyn Lund- Lunding, who was at Kripalu at the time. And she called me up to come up to Kripalu to staff manage a women in yoga retreat, which I did. And in that experience, just being in the room with, the, with women feeling the love in the room it also happened to be my birthday which was june and i'd come back from india in february i think yeah i think middle february so i hadn't taught and i had been teaching regularly i, I both at kripalu no i hadn't started teaching at kripalu yet then it was just a valued community but in my own community in rhode island and i I just stopped teaching for months. It was June 3rd, that weekend, because it was my birthday. And because it was my birthday, the staff for the retreat all gathered around. I laid down on the floor. They put their hands on me and just sent me blessings. Now they didn't know about my experience of stopping yoga at the time. They just sent me blessings and they spoke blessings. And it was lovely. And I felt so much light, like actually that sense of sponda of energy, of light surrounding me. And I sat up and I felt like my, I felt my power come back into my body. I felt that I could, and I started teaching again. I was like, thank you. It was, it was the big stick teacher who Sort of beat me down, and it was the women, my yoga, sangha, that brought me back to life as a teacher. So beautiful. And I guess that leads
0: us into my last question for you, which is a nice, easy one. If there's, if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you share down into one core key essence. What would that
1: be? The love in the room. That's it. It's about creating as a yoga teacher, as a yoga therapist, as a, as a psychotherapist, which I am not, creating that space for healing to happen. And we can do that through yoga, through the compassion And self-awareness that our practices bring to us. It brings that, you know, and so for me, when I teach, it's, it's about maintaining, sustaining the love in the room. Oh, thank you so much, Amy.
0: Thank you for sending that love across the internet. It's such a wonderful experience to talk to you this morning. And I'm so grateful for you being very gracious with my admin kerfuffle and being patient with me. Thank you so much. Oh,
1: It's been my pleasure, really, jo. And And I don't think that the Australian accent is harsh. It makes me <laughs> remember the people I love in Australia when I hear you speak. So... So I'm, I'm very glad to, to have had this conversation and soaked in your articulate voice. Oh, thank you so much.
0: I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Temple Dancer is available through Tamamook Press and we'll put that link in the show notes. And Amy also has an accessible yoga card deck called Yoga for Mood, Depression and Anxiety coming out in 2021, which will be published by Sounds True. Our next episode will be out January 4th, and we'll be talking to Marsha Banks-Harold. Marsha is an engineer as well as a trauma-informed and accessible yoga therapist and advocate for social justice. In her own words, she was called to empower clients to fortify one's strength of awesomeness, to learn, to rely on one's authentic self, and to cultivate everlasting physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual peace. And so Pies is the acronym for these qualities and the name of her studio we had such a great conversation with Marsha and I know you'll enjoy listening to that one speaking of listening our theme song is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and used with permission you can check out more of his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com thank you so much for tuning in Ran and I really appreciate you spending your time with us we wish you a happy Christmas and New Year and send you all some big big love